You didn't like sleeping underneath your desk? You didn't like the late nights of 25 hour days? <laughs> That's right. I think it was my 23rd birthday. I had spent 20 of the 24 hours in the office. And so, you know, not too ideal there. But what I did learn was that I was passionate about investing. At the time, it was just public markets investing. And then I was passionate about tech. The Pathfinder podcast is presented to you by Ansarado. Ansarado is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Ansarado has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over $1 trillion worth of deals. Ansarado is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI-powered data rooms, built-in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Ansarada.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by Richard Kirby. Richard is a general partner at Equal Ventures, where he's utilizing his talents for identifying and evaluating early-stage investments. In 2012, he joined Venrock, where his investments included Six Sense, Amino Apps, Beckon, Burner, Lux Valet, and Salsify. He's with us today to share some of his deal-making stories, the importance of diversity in VC enterprises, if we get lucky, maybe even give us some tips responding good investments. Welcome, Richard Kirby. Thank you, Zahani. Pleasure. <laughs> See, in this moment right now, I wish I could have some of these really cool features to this platform so I could do like <laughs> a round of applause. I could do like there a horn or something like that. You know, you're like, oh, there Dahani goes with all of his different toys. Visual effects after the fact, Dahani. We can do this. <laughs> all right. Before we get into all the different ways that you've been incredibly successful, you know, being a Hoyas fan, I mean, I imagine it's it's been kind of tough, right? You know, because, you know, I went to Michigan and I think we're doing all right. But uh, how are your Hoyas? How, how are they holding up? A little rocky start this season this year, but I think we'll, we'll fare better come January, February, March. That's the hope, at least. You think so? I think so. I think so. We got some good young talent. I mean, your Michigan squad's in trouble on Saturday, so let's not talk about that now. But, you know, I'm thinking about this world of investing, and I, I remember when we met and, you know, just some of our conversations. And, you know, I got introduced to the investing world because, you know, making the transition from football into television and television, watching sort of the world start to shift and change from the VC world, the private equity world, mm-hmm. it became something of interest because I always thought, how can I identify really good and unique people that I can invest in that have great ideas? And how can I kind of be a part of their life by giving them sort of this ad- advice and support, this guidance that some might say, that was where I got started. What about yourself? How did you find your way mm-hmm. into this? investing world, right? How did you think about it before? Sure. And even when you transitioned out of college and going into Credit Suisse, how did you even think to be interested in it? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, my first level of interest was just around like making money to be very blunt about it. Like I, when I was in college, I just heard that investment banking was like the most competitive thing and the most, you know, financially rewarding thing. So I said, okay, let me try and pursue that path. Went ahead and did that. You know, as you mentioned, joined Credit Suisse 
and uh, did that for two years and can't say I enjoyed it for those two years. <laughs> you didn't like sleeping underneath your desk? You didn't like the late nights, the 25-hour days? <laughs> That's right. I think it was my 23rd birthday. I had spent 20 of the 24 hours in the office. And so, you know, not too ideal there. But what I did learn was that I was passionate about investing. At the time, it was just public markets investing. And then I was passionate about tech. And so I thought, okay, I know I like those two kind of themes. How do I find a way to kind of pursue that in a career path that's not what I'm doing now? And that's kind of when I just started like researching, Googling, et cetera, kind of stumbled upon the best way to, I thought, to marry tech passion with investing passion is venture capital. And so, you know, I then sent like probably a hundred or so cold emails to partners at firms. And I asked them, I basically was always keeping track of whenever a company that raised capital I thought was interesting. And so I said, hey, Dahani, I saw you invested in XYZ company. We'd love to understand like the rationale behind that investment. And of those hundred or so emails, probably 90 were never answered. Another five or six were, you know, the response was, hey, thanks for reaching out. We don't talk about our investments. Goodbye. <laughs> and then maybe like three, maybe four, were like, hey, I'll talk for 20 minutes was kind of the layout of the response rate I got. You know, fortunately, one of those firms was a firm called IVP, Institutional Venture Partners in the Bay Area. And I actually emailed the guy named Steve Herrick. And then he said, hey, talk to my associate, basically, is what he said, in, in much nicer words in his email. And so I thought, great. And then I ended up chatting with this guy named Michael McLean. And he said, hey, I actually enjoyed our conversation. We're also looking to hire somebody. So why don't you just shoot me a resume? And so I did that. And then I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months later, went through the interview process with them and was fortunate to get the offer to join them. And so I moved out to the West Coast, Bay Area. Actually, my interview with them was my first time ever in the Bay Area. But, you know, you have to make it sound like you've been there multiple times, obviously. <laughs> so, And so moved, moved there to join that role. But you know, ironically, my best friend was from San Francisco, worked with me at Credit Suisse, went to college together. He also went back to the SF area at the same time I did. So made it a little easier outside of work to kind of make it move out west. Yeah, so for those who don't know, IVP, it's a later stage venture fund, you know, mm -hmm. several billions of AUM. You know, when I was there, we were writing checks in the order of $30 million. They now write much larger checks. But, you know, spent another two years there. And that was my first, like, foray into venture capital. And my test for myself was, hey, do I like this? Is effectively the question I was trying to answer. Mm. And what I was able to answer was, yes, really like venture capital. But this stage of venture capital, I thought, still was not yet what I was fit to do effectively. And the thought process there was, you know, I had never been an entrepreneur beforehand. But I wanted to learn from them, and I also wanted to find ways to be helpful to them. And mm. I thought that was harder to do at the later stages because when we were investing in companies, you know, they were already at probably a couple hundred employees. They were well-oiled machines. They needed more capital than needed to help. And so the ability to kind of interact with founders, CEOs, in a way that was meaningful for both people was really hard to come by. And so I thought the best way to go do that was to move further and further earlier stage. And so with that, joined a firm called Venrock. It's, I think, the second oldest venture firm in America. It is originally the venture arm of the Rockefeller family. That's why it's called Venrock. And so mm. I've been around for quite a while. And there I got to focus on mostly Series A investing. So a lot older than I was at IVP. And, you know, learned a lot there too. Spent five years there making you know, investments across a number of different categories. And I think what I learned the most there was investing is or I should say venture capital is not just about investing in companies. Mm. There's other things that come to play. And those things are like fund management and fundraising. Things that I was able to get some exposure to to realize, hey, 
it's not just about giving Dahani money and then, you know, hoping he gives you 10x back. <laughs> and so I learned a lot there. And that I think may help me become more of a fulsome venture capitalist than someone who was just trying to throw money around at people. And um, that ultimately led to me thinking, okay, I now I've figured out where I think I work best. And that's the seed stage. So one level even earlier than Venrock. And, you know, left there and created a firm with my co-founder, Rick, called Equal Ventures. And now we are focused on leading and co-leading seed stage investments. So think of a founder that's raising roughly $3 million. Mm -hmm. We'll put in a million and a half to $2 million of that round. And so, you know, leading those rounds oftentimes. And we are a journalist fund, so we invest across a wide variety of categories. But I'd say we spend the most majority of our time in what we call legacy markets. And so those are defined as categories that have not yet become tech-enabled Examples would include, you know, fintech, insurance, logistics and supply chain, elder care, childcare, e-commerce enablement, a wide variety of things. And now I've realized I've talked for about like 37 minutes. And so I'm going to stop there, <laughs> Dahani, and, and hopefully provide you with the ability to kind of direct me where you want me to go. No, those are so, so many different paths. And I love how, you know, you've kind of taken this trip, so to speak, around the globe and picked up these different, you know, parts of your life and sort of written different chapters, which has inevitably built this amazing book of where you spend your time now. But I think one of the things that you said at the very beginning of your your 37-minute diatribe <laughs> was, <laughs> was you sent out a hundred different, basically, applications and letters, a hundred of them. Right. And so you're sitting at your desk and you sent out a hundred of them. You know, you were kind of watching, you're following the markets. And, and I also want to kind of ask you a question about public markets versus, you know, venture markets. Right. You know, one where you can kind of do what you wish and the other one where you're kind of looking at identifying people and you have long term hold and capital and stuff like that. But what compelled you to send that many letters and still feel as though it was going to be something for you. You know, there's this notion mm -hmm. of grit. There's this notion of endurance that I think a lot of people just completely forget in this world today, right? Because if I were to say the S name, you know, she'd pop up on my screen. And, you know, if I talk on my <laughs> phone, you know, I, and I'd say, you know, or I talk to the A name, she'd pop up somewhere else, right? <laughs> you know, we all know these different people and we're not going to say yeah. their name because it just shut down our whole computer, right? So <laughs> why did you send out all those letters and what made you wait? What made you mm -hmm. feel compelled enough to say, you know what, something of this is going to come out and it's going to be something that I really want to do? Yeah, I think it was the fact that I wanted to try it out, honestly. So, you know, I, I realized that like what I was doing now was not what I wanted to do for the next 25, 30 years. Had done research on a variety of different things I could do with myself based on like my limited previous experience. And I thought that this was the thing. And so my viewpoint was, I don't know how else to get in there because I, I realized mm. that like, you know, when you submit an application to a job on the company's website, like you're never going to get a response. I was like, okay, that's probably a waste of time. <laughs> Let alone venture firms don't even do that. Like you can't even apply to a venture job on any venture firm's website. And three, I was like, I never saw like job postings for this thing. And so I figured, Hey, at the very least, let me try and learn. And, and, you know, in those emails I sent, like none of them said, Hey, are you looking to hire? It was all based on like, asking you questions about things that you do in your day job. And like most venture capitalists, I'm sure as you already know, Donnie love hearing themselves speak. And so like, I was like, Hey, I'm giving someone an opportunity to talk all the crap they want to talk about their stuff. And so like, I hope they're going to say yes. And obviously I was wrong because most said no, but that's what I thought was going to be the success rate for me. And I honestly didn't think of like 
any other pathway in, to be honest with you. And what I also did in those emails, I made sure I sent them from my Credit Suisse email address. Mm. That way it looked like an investment banker was emailing them about their company. So trying to relate the email to something they would care about. Oh, like, you know, I invest in these companies on stage. I want them to go public. That means I got to talk to an investment bank at some point. And so I figured that would be better than sending, you know, an email from richardkirby at gmail.com, which probably gets stopped by some spam filter they have there, let alone anything else. <laughs> and so I think the, the two things that worked for me were like the Credit Suisse email, sending a annoying amount of emails and not asking for a job, but, you know, wanting to learn, I think worked out well. And, and I kept saying them because I, my viewpoint is like, I want to get an answer. The answer can be no, mm. it's fine, but I'll keep emailing mm. you till you say yes or no. And that was a similar tactic that, you know, Rick and I use in our fundraise. Like we talk to LPs, LPs ghost on you all the time, just like venture capitalists will do on founders, unfortunately. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to keep emailing this LP until he or she says yes or no. Like, if you want to stop here for me, give me an answer. And so I'll just keep going. But part of that had to be something else in you, right? You know, the, the notion of being at Credit Suisse and being up 20 hours or 24 out of the 25 hours, like there, there's something else in you. And what I kind of want to impress upon those that are listening is that like the world of investing, the world of, you know, venture and private equity and public markets, it's not easy. And a lot mm-hmm. of people just think that you kind of turn this, you know, turn this corner and all of a sudden things are just kind of presented to you and you can just all of a sudden do it. But it takes a lot of time and energy. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of those Gordon Gecko moments, right? Sure. Where you just <laughs> kind of show up with a gift and you're like, hey, you know, and, you know, we all have our little bit of tricks. I, I love I love the question. I love the the email. I, I love just sort of hammering them regardless because people want to ultimately yeah. see if you're truly committed to it. So I celebrate that. No, I appreciate that, Donnie. I think the other thing I'd throw in there too is that earlier on, I forget when it was in my career. I like I remember like meeting this investment banker time before I was in it. And I was like thinking that all these people were like so much smarter than I was mm. uh, who were doing this job. And then I met a couple of them. I'm like, man, these people are so dumb. They are not that smart. <laughs> and then I was like, I'm not that smart either. And so like if the not smart people can do this job, then like I can probably do this job because I'm in that bucket too. And that was the other thing. It's like, you know, I mean, it's intimidating and scary at first because it's like something you've never done, don't know how to do, et cetera. But then you realize like some people who are doing this job, not that special, myself included. And so let's go ahead and figure this out how to get in there. So while you were at Venrock, what was that experience like? I mean, you had to be, you know, excited at the fact that they wanted you there, right? Mm -hmm. That you could have made that transition and all of a sudden they kind of brought you in. You had to feel a little bit of that ego lift, but when you got there into the firm, it also had to be a little bit of a slap in the face because a lot of things that you didn't know or things that you did know, all of a sudden now are coming at you like at a hundred miles an hour. Yes, I would say actually like the learning curve for like Venark I thought wasn't too high just because I had been at IBP before. And so I'd already been in venture capital. Yes, it was a different stage, but I think the the day-to-day job of venture capital is very similar, whether you're doing later stage or early stage, right? Mm. It's lots of meetings with companies and founders. It's lots of emails responding to those companies and founders. It's doing diligence to see if you want to invest or not. And then it's you know finding ways to be helpful to those founders. So those characteristics definitely, I think, are parallel with whether it's late stage, early stage, or you know even earlier. So I think that wasn't the biggest thing. I think the biggest change is like just a different strategy and style of an approach, right? Mm. At IVP, we were, you know, a pretty aggressive team in going to hunt and find and win things, like very much outbound. Let's go find something and, and go ahead and go after it. 
it's much more of a deliberate pace at I or sorry at Venerock. And so that was you know very very different in terms of um, taking our time, making sure we really understand as much as possible before you know sending out that term sheet or trying to commit to winning that deal. And so it was a different, I think, style and approach more than anything else. And I think it's really awesome to be able to learn and see how different approaches work. Because I think you can look at many different venture funds that are successful, and they all have done so in very different ways. Mm-hmm. There's no right way or wrong way to do it. The right way is the way that works for Dahani or Richard. That's the right way. And so that's what I try and hone in on, try and figure out, as I see the different approaches, what's the Richard Kirby way? Where do you find most success? And then, you know, double down and triple down on that. It's like playing basketball. Le- LeBron and KD don't play the same way, but they're both really successful, yeah. right? You know, each person's got to have like their game. You got to go back to your game, and when you're out there, you know, running your plays. Now, you know, if you're like Tom Brady, you're picking up on all the different cues of the other people, and you're involving your game, um, which is really important because if you kind of stay the same, you know, while the world evolves around you, you might kind of get left behind. So, yeah, how do you? start to identify and when you're talking about out there in the hunt for the deals how have you been able to sort of spot those deals and then at the same time what's the importance of diversifying some of those deals because you talk not necessarily about one vertical but several verticals yeah i think that's also part of like doing what works for you right for some folks they love to say you know what i'm a fintech investor i love fintech i'm gonna go as deep as possible that's all i care about whenever i've gotten deep in a category i just get bored I'm like, man, I'm so over it. Even though it's a great category, there may be great companies there. I'm like, why am I spending so much time here? You mean you don't (laughs) want to spend all your time with the elderly? Exactly, exactly. That's why I'm here with you, Dahani. Come on. (laughs) 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 And so, yeah, I diversify for a number. One, I think there's great business being built across many categories and sectors. And so that's one. Two, I just get much more excited by seeing opportunities across the verticals and just learning about many different sectors, markets, categories. And so that's that's mm. a, a me personal response. You know, as we go about, you know, sourcing these things, I think there's many mechanisms one can utilize, you know, reading a ton about a category. Let's say I do want to learn about, let's say, I don't know, childcare, go reading mm. about it. And if you go ahead and start diving deep there, one, you start to see the problems that exist there. And then two, you just stumble upon companies because companies are always putting out content or being mentioned in different periodicals or blog posts about categories. And so you can find companies which by, just by your learning activity. And then as you start meeting founders, you start to understand different segments and all of understand who are the players in the space. And so you can kind of quickly figure out who you need to meet with to figure out what's the best of these three, four, five, six options there. Mm-hmm. And then you know decide if you want to make an investment or bet there. And then I think at the end of the day, when having those combos with founders, it's the founders that are, I think, the best at educating you, even though, you know, you should do your homework beforehand to be educated. Those who educate you are the ones that you realize, man, they have got so much command and understanding of their space. It's awesome. Because I come in usually because at Equal, we try to do our best to understand as much as possible about a sector before me with the founder, because we don't want like this to be a purely educational thing where like, the founders teaching us about X, Y, and Z. If we can have a great base foundation there and say, hey, founder, don't spend 15 minutes explaining why childcare is important. I buy it. Let's talk about why you are the right person to go do this and why your solution is the right solution to go solve this pain point. And that, mm. I think it's nuanced, but I think it changes the conversation from a pitch to a conversation about folks who are interested in a solution or pain point. And I think that puts you in a much better spot to win when you want to win a, an opportunity there. But at the end of the day, I think like everything that we invest on, there's like a 
nuance about the market that's not like widely known or believed that the founder, because he or she is spending their whole day, every day in that space, they know it and they found it. And if you can buy into that, that's when I think you find something pretty special. And so it's really hunting down those people who have identified those nuances that you believe in. So it's the nuances that they've identified. It's a lot about their obsession and being able to teach you that makes a good founder and potentially a good investment. But what about a good VC? You know, Mm. what makes a a good VC? Is it someone that just likes to talk about themselves all day long? (laughs) Is it someone that just has all the relationships in the world? I mean, you know, what differentiates, let's just call it the the smart people from the not so smart people, the successful people from the not so successful people. And oh, by the way, Mm -hmm. you know, they might be, you know, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive either. Exactly right. Exactly right. I know a lot of smart people who just haven't been successful. It doesn't mean that they're not great investors or not doing a right or wrong. Just that, you know, a lot of, I think, honestly, luck plays into this. Hmm. The, the good thing, though, I guess, is that as you get lucky once or twice, your chance of becoming, quote unquote, lucky again, go up because now everyone's associating success with Dahani and therefore I got to send my best deals to Dahani. I know, man, Dahani's got the special sauce. Hey, make sure everybody's and- hearing this. Make sure everybody's hearing this. I, I keep saying it. Send the best deal to Dahani. Keep sending all the special stuff to Dahani. Throw my name you know? out there. <laughs> so you want, it's kind of, you know, winning begets winning, right? Like people want to play in, in the NFL with a winner. People want to be associated with a winner on the investor side, the founder side. So I think that's a part of it. But at the end of the day, I think like there's, I don't know, four or five things that you got to you know do well in concert to be great at this gig. And I'm not great at it myself, so I'm trying to get there every day. But I think one is you got to be able to find opportunities. And so mm-hmm. can you be aggressive in whatever fashion you want in terms of sourcing? Because if you can't find a great investment, it doesn't matter if you believed in it because you never saw it. So you never had access to win in the first place. Mm. I think two, you got to be able to do the work to figure out if it's an investment opportunity that you want to make. Right. And so you can't just blindly fall in love with whatever the CEO says because, you know, he or she may be wrong on their assumptions. And if you haven't done the work to understand that, you can get in trouble really quickly. And then two, after, I guess, thirds, right? After you've done your homework, you know, can you win? Mm. That's really, really important. Lots of people see great investments and, you know, wanted to do the investment. Like you could have said, hey, I really wanted to, you know, invest in Facebook's, I don't know, Series A or whatever it might be or Series B, but like Excel did it. You didn't do it. So you didn't win. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter. Yeah, you, it's great that you, you believe in the company and yeah, yeah, but like at the end of the day, the founder chose somebody else. And mm-hmm. if you can't win, it doesn't matter what you see or if you get to the right conclusion. Winning is really important. And winning is not easy, particularly when a founder has to pick a lead firm, not like 17 leads. Hey, I could be one of 17, but can you be one of one? And that's really mm-hmm. hard to do. And so you need to be able to kind of demonstrate that. And then after the fact, you got to be able to demonstrate, hey, I can add value to that founder. And not to say that, you know, Venture investors are always writing value in any capacity to a founder. I think at the end of the day, the, the founder will win or lose irrespective of the founder most times, vast majority of time. But if you can find ways to be helpful there, the chances of that founder wanting to refer more and more of their best high-quality founders to you goes up. And that increases your chance of seeing the next great thing. And once again, it begets that winning thing again. And then lastly, I'd say if, if you are part of a firm, so you've got colleagues and other partners to work with, being able to sell this opportunity to your colleagues is important as well, because oftentimes you may not be able to just say, hey, 
I'm going to invest in this deal because I want to. It's like, no, you got to get to Honda to say yes to, and you might need this person to say yes to. And so being able to sell why a firm should be doing something is also important if your firm has you know more than one partner. And so those are the things I think you need to get right. And you can't just get one of those things right. You need to get them all right mm. every single time to be as successful as possible. And then, yes, you need some of that luck to kind of go in your favor. Like there are companies that, because their sector died during COVID, that's really unlucky. Can't predict that. I mean, I, I couldn't, you couldn't. If we could, we'd probably have a lot more money right now, both of us, but we couldn't, right? And, and two, though, there's some sectors where like COVID was great for them and those companies are crushing now. And so once again, you want to be on the right side of luck at times. That's uh, what I would call the, the deal-making mindset. You know, you got to win <laughs> every single one all the time. I would say that challenging piece of getting everybody around the table and having consensus, that's probably like, the art form that takes the most amount of time to kind of figure out, because on the one hand, you want people to agree with you. On the other hand, you want to be challenged in order to kind of push the limits. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you want to go as fast as you possibly can. And on the mm-hmm. other hand, you want everybody to kind of take their time because you want to make sure that it's the right thing to do. The Pathfinders podcast is presented to you by Ansarada. Ansarad is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarad has just launched Freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation, or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at ensarada.com slash quote. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me. Ensarada.com for your next winning outcome. How do you say passionate? in this world of of venture investing because of all of sometimes the mundane things and then some of the exciting things. I mean, I'd imagine, you know, you go on the same roller coaster that so many other people go on as well. Yeah, no. I'll just throw one caveat to my last response there on the consensus internally. I actually don't believe in consensus at all. I think that Mm. leads to just terrible deal making personally. I think the most exciting opportunities tend to be the most controversial ones. And so I like to see controversy in discussion because it means that like whatever it is you're talking about it's probably really hard to get done and it's not obvious and those are things so wait so if you do that so how do you and your partner say yay or nay how do you vote yes it depends on the firm right and so some firms it's i think there are firms exist that are consensus but i think that's actually the minority of firms i think most firms probably have like some form of like scoring where it's like hey there's like five of us you need two or you need three or whatever it might be. I know there are some firms too, where it's like, you just need you and somebody else. And there's some firms where it's like, hey, as long as you want to go do it, go do it. And so it's a variety of ways in which firms have outlined their process to get deals done. But no matter what the process is, it doesn't remove the fact that you have to be able to kind of explain and sell internally on why it should be happening, because you should kind of get the response of folks. And I think what works well is that like, the answer is, Yes, no, maybe is the response mm. you can give. And let's say everyone is at a no, but you can get some folks from no to maybe. You, you brought them along, which is great. That means that they are now more encouraged by that. And then I think the second piece is 
you've basically unearthed other questions because there may be something I just forgot to think about. I'm like, oh man, Donnie made a great point. Like that point, depending on how it's answered, could kill the company. So mm-hmm. let me actually go do more work on that too. And so I think that's part of the process that you want to understand. But then they, no matter what firm you're at, usually one person, one partner, I should say, has spent the majority of the time with that founder. And so to have your belief and judgment be discounted by someone who's spent five minutes with the founder, I think that's mm. unfair. And so it shouldn't be that way at all. So when you got into the investing world and found yourself on this continual learning journey, did you think that you were going to be at the point with Equal Ventures? Or was that never a thought at the very beginning of your journey? Very beginning, not in my purview at all. I, I couldn't see it from any angle, any peripheral vision wasn't there. For me, it was just like, I think this is a cool industry. I want to learn and go do it. And then as I found it to be more and more compelling, I, I kind of got more excited by it. And then eventually over time, the like start your own firm thing starts to creep in. But you don't know truly if you're ever ready to go do that either. So it's like really daunting whether whatever kind of entrepreneur you are, whether it's finding a tech company, a brick and mortar company, a fund, it's always scary going out to kind of start it on your own or with somebody else or in any capacity. And I realized, sorry, I didn't answer your, your previous question too on, on the passion piece, but um, like anybody else, ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. And, you know, sometimes you can get into like a, a deal rut where you're like, man, I haven't done something in a really long time. Mm. Am I not seeing the good things? Do, do I suck? Am I like, what, what's happening? And so that definitely keeps in your mind for sure. What kind of keeps me going is meeting a great founder. Like it only takes one founder you meet in you know a day, a week, a month to be like, oh, this is so exciting. Whatever they're working on. It's so interesting. I can't stop learning about it. And then two, when you chat with one of your existing founders and you can find ways in which they, you can be helpful to them, that's awesome. Like when you can say, hey, Dahani, you need help with what? All right, cool. Give me like a week. Let me let me try hack at it for you. And then when you can actually have tangible help to that person, you're like, oh, mm. this is actually why I do this, right? This is great. Because like I'm, even though it may be like a really, really small thing, it takes something off their plate. And if you take something off their plate, they can focus on something that's way more important for them long-term. And that that little thing, each one of those little things increases the chances of them having success in the future. So how do you think about sort of the legacy? I, I know you just kicked off Equal Ventures, but how do you think about the future of Equal, right? How do you think about sort of not only recruiting, but also diversifying that recruiting mm-hmm. just as much as diversifying sort of the portfolio. Yeah. And how do you convince people that you're thinking about things differently in a landscape of venture capitalism that's kind of changing over time? Yeah, I think look, long-term success for us looks like outside of like the math, that math's obviously easy to understand, but the success is like, are we a founder's first call? I, I, like, there's a brand new founder starting a brand new company. And when he or she thinks of venture firms that she wants to go reach out to, is Equal Ventures one of them or the one? Mm-hmm. That's like, I think, what the point you want to get to. Because once again, that like in that means you're gonna see the highest quality stuff if you can kind of get into that nomenclature when like mm. the first thing is that on top of your head. Now, with that said, we're nowhere near that. People don't know who the hell Equal Ventures is. We're nobodies, right? We're trying to get there and, and, and do the work to kind of get there. That means investing in great companies and founders, and hopefully those companies have success. And then that makes us look smarter than we actually are. And folks buy that, that we're smarter than we actually are, and then come and want to talk to us. And so those are things that we're trying to kind of implement internally. And I think at the end of the day, people want to work with 
other people they like. And obviously you, you got to be smart and, and work hard and whatnot. But like, if people don't like you and want to work and be around you, it doesn't matter. They're not going to spend, you might be able to con them to come work with you, but they're going to figure out real quickly, man, I made a mistake. Why am I at this place? And they're going to be gone. And then when they're gone, they're going to tell everybody else like, hey, you do not want to go there. And let me tell you, I've been in there. It doesn't look good in the inside. Let me tell you what's wrong. And so, you know, people want to work with just great people that they respect, like, want to spend time with. And so I think that's really the ultimate way to attract great people, regardless of what industry you're working in. One of my friends in Cincinnati used to always say, people want to do business with those that they know, like, and trust. Right. Right. And so that's sort of a a new way to look at a similar formula. But relationships definitely do matter. I mean, both short term and long term, where they say it takes you know, years to build relationships. It takes seconds to destroy them. Right. Right. It takes right. seconds. And, and people don't realize that you could do one thing wrong. People like, you know what? I should have recognized in the first place. I'm not giving them another chance. <laughs> so that's, that's tough. So while you're building those relationships, I, you know, there's two last questions. One being, tell me a little bit about this stealth mode, huh? Because I know <laughs> sure. that you're building relationships without me, Kirby. I, I, you're building relationships and you're not telling me about them, Kirby. I'm hearing about stealth mode. I'm not getting any email. I'm not on WhatsApp, Discord. I mean, I'm not getting anything in my text messages, nothing, no emails. Like, what's up with stealth mode? Yes, I know. It's stealth. But there you go. Humor me for a little bit. That's right. I, I will go ahead, Don. Well, you know, Don, you have easy access to me. You can just text me. So, you know, it's, it's another level above stealth mode. But, you know, so stealth mode is um, a community that I created. Charles Hudson, a long time ago now, I want to say it was like 2011-ish, let's call it. And it's a a chapter-based community. So we've got three chapters, one in the Bay Area, one in New York, and one in LA. And really, it's just a offline and online community for African-Americans in tech. That's just Mm. what it is. Black folk in tech, let's get together. Digitally is via Google Groups. It used to be Google Groups and Slack, but like I realized only engineers use Slack. And so like there wasn't enough engagement there. And so now it's actually fully Google Groups is like the main place where this discussion occurs. And the community really discusses about like anything tech related. It could be, hey, I'm starting a new company. Can you guys give me some feedback, help? Mm. I'm looking for funding. Who's interested in this category? I'm looking for a co-founder. Help me out here. To the, I think, even more important question of, hey, I'm working at this big company and people don't understand how to interact with black people inside their company. Mm. Like, Questions like that that you can't find in like a blog post because trolls come running. It, it, these these convos we have in Stubbit are convos that you know are a trusted community, and I think that's why folks feel comfortable saying whatever they want about mm-hmm. anything in the industry and outside the industry because they know it's a safe spot. Yet people have pushback and disagreements within the community, but it's respectful, and you know that like your thoughts are not going to be blasted on Twitter or Reddit to get like flamed and exposed by anyone else just because it's your thoughts, and so. It's really, I think, it was like a trusted community for those within tech. The you know members of the communities are folks on the investing side, their founders, their engineers, their operators, their lawyers, their recruiters. So anything that encompasses what a tech ecosystem needs to run are what you can see from the members in the community. We're now, I think, somewhere between across the three chapters, fifteen hundred to two thousand folks ish, roughly. The offline component, you know, has been stagnant because of COVID but hoping to kind of get those ramped back up, you know, in the short term, because you can have a great time and meeting people online, but nothing beats the in-person piece. And so we want to get back to that as soon as possible. 
Well, big ups to you and Charles Hudson. Fantastic. And I can't wait to get on the list. Can't wait to get full access. I'm just saying, you know. You shoot me a text on it. I, I might be able to make room for you. Maybe. We'll see. Okay. All right. Well, if there's room, <laughs> I'll send you 100, 100 emails and maybe one of them will get through. <laughs> but that, I think, stealth mode is one of the most important pieces that everybody kind of take away. You need to have community. You need to have those that have had those experiences that they can provide you that feedback that solicited advice because we all need to know what's around the corner. That's how you become successful. Mm -hmm. If you go around the corner, you don't know that the car is coming. You're going to get hit. But all of a sudden they tell you just wait a beat and the car passes. You're going to continue on. That's how you find success by knowing what are some of the hazards along the way. And then also different ways to kind of cross the street, if you will. So one of the things that we we always end with, and uh, I'd imagine you have a good sense of this, but where do you like to celebrate your meals and deals? I know <laughs> it, may, it might be with stealth mode, you know, in your Google Docs, or it might be at a restaurant or it might be a bar. Where do you like to celebrate your deals? We always like to close out the Pathfinders by figuring out where you celebrate and have a good time. I'm not really good at celebrating wins, unfortunately. But, you know, what it is, it's like hanging out with family and friends in any capacity. It doesn't really matter where it is. I think the the venue is less important than those who are around. And so as long as the right folks are around to celebrate, you could pick any venue you want. I'll be happy. Good. Well, hopefully I get invited to some of these celebrations as Equal Ventures continues to do good deals. Richard Kirby, I appreciate you being here today, sharing the wealth of knowledge that you have and the continued efforts that you have to building out your your platform, but also bringing other people to the table as well. So I just want to say thank you so much, Richard. No, thank you, Donnie. Appreciate the time and thanks for making time for me. Boom! Success. Success. Thank you, my friend. A special thanks again to Richard Kirby for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work he's doing to encourage diversity, investing with his networks like Stealth Mode and how Equal Ventures is coming out, investing and deal-making from a new perspective. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. <laughs>